country. I was trying to get cash. I was trying to sell ether and get to dollars any way I could. And the banks wouldn't take our money because we hadn't done the AML and the KYC on our customers. So in fact, I actually was cashing out and trying to send to the banks. The banks were taking my money and the exchanges were saying, oh, you got to go back into ether again. I was like, oh no. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest David Siegel. David, are you ready to rock? I am ready. All Good right. Fantastic. Well, let me tell the audience about you. David is the world's first web designer, author of five books on the web and business, and he has started 23 companies, including Studio Verso, one of the world's first digital agencies, which was sold to KPMG. His most recent book, and ladies and gentlemen, this book is highly rated on Amazon, is called Pull, which describes the shift from powerful companies to powerful consumers. In 2016, David was a candidate for the Dean of Stanford Business School. And in July 2017, he led a team of volunteers to a successful ICO of the Pillar Project, raising over 20 million US dollars. He's also CEO of 2030, a venture studio based in London. So David, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Hey, Andrew. Well, you forgot to mention that I'm a chocolate expert and I teach classes in dark chocolate. I also, I'm 59 years old and my entire life has been spent in entrepreneurship. I had 20 years in Silicon Valley. The only company I've ever gotten a paycheck from is Pixar. And I joined Pixar as a young man out of Stanford University in 1986. It's the first year of Pixar and Pixar, the company, promptly failed. It failed catastrophically. The company ran out of money. It was a hardware company. We were building a computer, an image computer, and it failed miserably. Steve Jobs put at least $20 million into that and lost it all. And then they recapitalized and reset the company and renamed it Pixar Studios. And that's the company people know. So take any large successful company, and I'll bet you... I'll bet you a wooden nickel, I'll bet you a real dollar, I'll bet you an ether that they are not on the business plan they first wrote in their first garage. Nothing to do with the very first idea. They always, if you are successful, you have pivoted. I guess you've got a lot of experience in that starting 23 companies that <laughs> the idea of iterating and pivoting you know, based upon real customer demand versus your perception of what you think or your estimate of customer demand is, I guess, would you say that that's the source of why you're pivoting because you think it's this that you're going to hit, but actually it's something slightly different? Or what is the source of that? Well, from a forensic point of view, the reason most startups fail is failure to make the sale. So people don't understand this. They think it's some kind of product market fit or engineering or the product wasn't good enough or it wasn't, it was management or it wasn't enough money. In fact, all those things are second or later causes. The number one cause of failure is failure to make the sale. And that's why anyone asks me for advice on being an entrepreneur, I say, you know, there's a matrix of 
like new product on one axis and new versus old product and then new versus old market, right? And what you don't want to do is sell a new thing to new people that you don't know or who don't know you. And what you don't want to do is sell an old thing to old people who already know it and that's a well-established market because there's no margin there. So you got to pick one of the other two quadrants. You got to sell something new to an established market that you know or you have to sell something old to a new market, right? That's not bad. So choose one of those. And my general advice is take an existing product and it might be some new breakthrough product, but it also might be an old product for a new market and just sell it. Take someone else's product and sell it. If you can sell someone else's product, you can then probably sell your own product, but don't do two things at once. Don't make a new product and try to enter a new market. Beautiful. Great advice. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since <laughs> no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, we think it's going to be unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story or in your case, I'm going to say stories. Yeah, I have a couple. The first one was a $100 million mistake. So I'll start with that. That's a little, I made that about a year ago. And the main message there, Andrew, is you lose money pretty much the same way you make it in the markets. And people don't get that. Like, hey, I made money. Ha ha. Well, that's great. But guess how you lose it? Doing pretty much the exact same thing. So we had an ICO and Ether, our cryptocurrency, was at $170. That means we had a $21 million valuation at the time, or that's how much money we raised. By the end of that year, we had $150 million worth of Ether. Ether was up that much. Ether went up almost 10 times in the time after our ICO. Now, I am conscious of money management because what determines the winner's long run from the losers is not how good you are at playing the game. It's how good you are at money management. How good you are at what? Money management. Money management. Okay. Yep. Right. So it doesn't matter how great an investor you are. If your money management scheme, you lose money the same way you make it. Your money management scheme determines the long run winners. And I knew this, I had studied failure. I've been a student of failure for 30 years and I knew that I had to cash out and I was trying so hard, Andrew. I was trying to get cash. I was trying to sell ether and get to dollars any way I could. And the banks wouldn't take our money because we hadn't done the AML and the KYC on our customers. So in fact, I actually was cashing out and trying to send to the banks. The banks were taking my money and the exchanges were saying, oh, you got to go back into Ether again. I was like, oh, no. And we were trying so hard to get a bank to take our money. And it took months and months and months. And by the time we finally got a bank to even just take a bit of it, I mean, I wanted to put 50 million bucks into a bank account right away. There's just no chance. AML prevents that. And an AML is not a very good law. I could go into long details yeah, and for that. those that don't know what that means it's the anti-money laundering law regulation it's a candidate for the least effective regulatory intervention in history and most onerous we spend 70 billion dollars a year in europe to recoup 1 billion of so-called laundered money that's one percent of all money that is supposedly laundered it's a complete disaster so anyway i'm trying 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 and Ether's going down, down, down. Bitcoin's going down, down, down. And just it's just this inverse correlation where 
as I'm able to get money out, the price is going down and I'm finally getting banking relationships and private banks and exchanges to work with us. And at the end of it, you know, Ether was back down to say 350 bucks. And mostly I had made a few investments. I've made an investment in a hedge fund or two. We got a few dollars out, but mostly we wrote it down. And then at 350, you know, we just, and this is all my call. I mean, I can see now in the rearview mirror how I could have weathered that. I could have gotten to dollars and stayed liquid, but I, I just was stymied by the bank. So there are a bunch of ways to do it without banks, but I just didn't go there. And then I was just in denial when we got to, down to $350. I said, well, let's just hope it goes back up. <laughs> and it subsequently went down to $73. Yeah. So $150 million down to now about $5 million. And we still have the lights turned on. We're still alive. We've slimmed down considerably. It's, it's austerity time here. And I think we're going to make it in the long run. But I have to switch modes now and work on fundraising in new ways. And it's all because not so much I was arrogant, but that I was trying and failing to do proper money management, which I knew very well what to do. I just couldn't do it. So difficult on the execution side. I have so many questions just yeah. on this. Let me ask you a few questions. If you had just raised that 20 million as normal cash, would this have been a different story? Or was there something about it that... Well, whenever you ask a hypothetical like that, I always say, well, what else are we holding equal? You know, like, you know, because if I had raised 20 million in cash, I probably would have put a bunch of that into Ether. And then the question is, what world are we in, in which I can, can I get out at the right time? And, you know, so, Got it. so okay. I would have had more money than I do now. But also, I would say that what happened was to our market, and this happened to Bitcoin and Ether and all the other cryptocurrencies, was regulatory capture. So that right. raises the, the other question, which is, is a currency really a currency? Are these currencies, if you can't get freely in and out of them? Currency is a much maligned word. So it's a store of value. It's not really a unit of exchange or a medium of account. So I don't call it money. So I'm not sure what a currency is. But cryptocurrencies are these things that run each individual blockchain. It's a unit of value inside a specific system for a blockchain. And our total market cap about a year ago was close to a trillion dollars. Total market cap now is maybe, what is it, 150 billion or something. So we, it was an incredibly promising, exciting time to be flaunting regulators and getting stuff done. And then we knew that regulatory capture would be a black swan, you know, outlying possibility. But we didn't think it would be as bad as the SEC wanting to regulate the United States back into the Stone Age. We didn't expect that. That was a surprise. He does want to regulate America back into the Stone Age. And so that's hurt everybody. Yeah. So let me ask one last question about this. And that is, if someone out there listening goes out there and raises money in ICO like this, exactly like you yeah. did, and let's just say that they had $150 million in value, would they be able to go to the banks and cash it out? If they yes, wanted to because you wouldn't do it the way what we did was we didn't know KYC, which no, know your customer. We didn't know who the customers were, and that was common. Now you're not going to do an ICO. If, 
anyway, ICOs are pretty much over, but in this hypothetical, you would do KYC, and that would give banks the story of where the money came from that they need. Got it. To be okay. able to have a bank account and cash out. Still okay. difficult, but much more doable with that. Okay, got it. All right, so that was a lot in that one. Do you want to go on to the next one? Yeah, I just want people to know about John Kelly. I don't know if you've studied John Kelly and his work, The Kelly Principle, The Kelly Betting. Mm -hmm. So the book on this is an incredible book called A Man for All Markets by Ed Thorpe. Ed Thorpe, in my view, is the world's best investor in history. Far more astute investor than Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And he has written kind of the definitive book on the Kelly theorem. That's a very technical book, but this book is his autobiography, A Man for All Markets. And he talks about the Kelly theorem or the Kelly system of money management. And that is the less money you have, the less you bet, the more your edge and the more you have, the more you bet. And so when it's getting down there, you don't shoot for the moon. You have to roll in and be conservative in money management. So yeah, my suggestion, my takeaway is, and I knew this, but I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it, but study money management because all the alpha you can generate in the world is going to come back to bite you if you don't understand money management. Got it. I have to apologize. As soon as you mentioned it, I went on Amazon and looked at it. A man for all market, markets, Edward Thorpe, T-H-O-R-P. Oh, we'll put a Best investment book in history. Great. I've never actually heard of it. So, and it comes in Kindle, Audible, hardcover, paperback. I'm going to get the Audible book in just a few minutes. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes. That's a great um, yeah. tip to read. So, all right. So let's continue. Well, uh, I sold my company in 1999 and that was a weird thing where I just got hit by the money truck and kind of by accident. So I had all this cash and, uh, you know, like everybody else, I thought I'd become an angel investor and sit on boards and I even went to the Harvard Business School and took the board course just to be cool, which was totally useless. But so I started investing, angel investing, and I was always on the side of the entrepreneurs. I always wanted to make sure they had enough money. And so I just overcommitted. I overallocated, and I didn't diversify. And that's very typical. Most angels make about six to 10 investments. That does not go well, and you never hear about them ever. They don't keep angel investing. And so they're not on the cover of any magazines and they're not the big exciting angels that you hear about who are killing it. Those are the outliers who in a Pareto distribution, you know, just by random luck, there must be some lucky dart throwers, lucky lottery winners. And they talk a lot about how skillful they are. But so you read that those are the guys who show up on the panels at the conferences. Is there a conference on failure? I think there actually is. Yeah, no, I think there actually is. Yeah, I, they have a website. And there is a conference. On, I'd love to go. That's a conference where you could actually learn a few things. But I forget the name of it. Sorry. Well, we have a breakout session right now happening right here for all of us. Learning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So I did okay. I became a typical angel investor, which is I lost a bunch of money and didn't like that. And then came the financial crisis. And like an idiot, I didn't know what I had to do except pull out of everything. So I did. I, I was in cash. As soon as Barrick Stearns went under, I went to full cash. And then after that, I made two dumb investments that pretty much ruined me. One, and it took a while. One was an investment in a factory in Cambodia, which I travel a lot. I was in Cambodia and said, hey, this looks like an exciting 
you know, frontier economy. Let's build something. Let's build some basic thing. So we built a brick factory in Cambodia with my money. And that happened. We got the factory built and open for business right into the teeth of the worldwide recession. We had just enough time to let the recession come from the United States to East Asia, and we just had no business. So I had funded it. I built it. We had a nice building. We had machines. We had about 40 people on staff. That wasn't very expensive, by the way. It was the machines were more expensive, but we couldn't make the sale. Mm. Nobody, all, everything was over at that time. And we couldn't, the next five years were just so hard that I was not able to hang in there. So we lost it. So that was, was a total. year of that. Well, we started in the beginning of 2008. We kind of right. opened in early 2009. Got it. Yep. At the time when we just could not make the sale. Got it. And we had Cambodian salespeople. I mean, we're not, uh, it wasn't just a bunch of Yanks. Yep. It was all locals. So that failed. And then in New York, I just kind of wanted to diversify and get into some basic industries. And I invested in a new kind of mortgage company. It's in the correspondence business. It's wholesale mortgage. It's a very high volume, very large numbers to do uh, Ginny May mortgage securitization. And it was very smart guys. A guy I knew who was a rocket scientist who was involved in this and they'd gotten just enough money to get going and I put in a couple million and I was the chairman and it was very promising except that we realized we needed enough money to have what's called regulatory capital. Uh, and we needed at least 10, more like 20 million for that. It had to be equity, not debt. And we didn't have anybody investing 20 million bucks into a company like that, into a startup. And so we had the trades, we had the deals, we had the infrastructure, we had everything. We even made a couple profitable trades, but we found that most, most of the trading partners wouldn't trade with us because we didn't have the regulatory capital, balance sheet capital. And we just, again, failed to make the sale. I mean, we had everything lined up. These guys are pros from, you know, they knew everything. The business plan was squeaky clean, except that we couldn't make the sale because we weren't appropriate business partners. We didn't have the regulatory cap. So that went completely under. Mm. Those two things hurt me after, you know, that was my solution to the financial crisis. Of course, if we realize that there really actually are no bubbles, and I study bubbles, and I don't believe there are any bubbles, if we could just go back to the financial crisis and just invest everything we had into an index fund, that would have worked out, you know? So Warren Buffett is right. And I say it to myself a lot, invest when others are fearful, cash out whenever others are overconfident. Yep. 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 All right. So right. what lessons, how would you summarize the lessons that you learned oh, from these? Oh, absolutely. Allocation error. So overcommitment. So over allocating and not diversifying. It's easy to be overconfident. You got to know that you're overconfident. Your estimates of your edge are always wrong. Uh, this is why in Kelly betting, we have what's called half Kelly. You make your best estimate and you cut it in half. And that's, this is what gamblers do at the table. There's some evidence that Warren Buffett uses a Kelly system. And you have to force yourself to recognize that uncertainty is probably a bigger factor than your internal narrative of what's going to happen. Because that's the fiction. Got it. Got it. I think that's a very clear takeaway. Well, let me summarize a little bit about what I take away from your story. I have somewhat of a similar story. When I was in Thailand, I arrived in Thailand in 1992. My best friend Dale came to see me. 
1994 and he was really like he was working in coffee at the time in Los Angeles and had worked in coffee all of his life and he's like the future is coffee fresh coffee in Thailand <laughs> so all these buildings we just thought you know for sure well we were probably 10 years early now now definitely the future is coffee but we were 10 years early but we got ourselves set up and I think about selling you know the minimum viable product was ground coffee in a plain Ziploc bag <laughs> with a handmade right. on it. And he, he sold it. We got our first customer bought in Ziploc bags because we didn't have our bags yet. So right. hats off to Dale for selling. But it brings up the next part that I take away is that uh, one of the things I take away from your story is, is the impact of macro factors. Now, we can call it like macroeconomic factors, but we sure. could just always call it, also call it kind of external factors, yeah. whether that's regulatory or not. And I think that's it's right. the hardest thing sometimes to see. What we didn't see was in 1997, we were just about to be hit by a crisis that was going to be the center of the storm started right here in Bangkok, Thailand. And so all of a sudden, I lost my job, which was helping fund the operation. We had just built a factory. And the only thing that allowed us to survive was we moved into the factory. We cut all of our costs. We had no sales at the time and we managed to survive. And now we have a company that's, you know, 23 years old with a hundred employees and, you know, $6 million in revenue. And it's a great little company, but man, at that time, the only reason why we survived was because we cut everything to the bone and we both moved into that factory and tried to make sure that we could survive. But those that's macro your coffee company? Yes. Yeah, that's wow. called Coffee Works. Because the Vietnamese came in and just crushed the price of coffee, no? Well, and we were a buyer of coffee because we were a roasting company. Ah, I so see. So we're, we're in the middle. We're a B2B roaster. So I see. it mm -hmm. actually it took a while for us to get to profitability. So whenever people ask me about startup, I always say, you don't want to talk to me. Talk yeah. to someone else because my beginning in startup was extremely painful, but we survived through persistence and all that. But <laughs> I want to say the second thing that I take away from your story is the idea of when you find an idea that you like, or when you find something that you're interested in, I think, you know, you don't want to make the mistake of not doing anything. That's a whole nother mistake. Sure. But I think that what I would say is try to figure out how you could take a small position in that investment. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's not easy when you're talking about a, building a factory, like a brick factory, as an example. Mm -hmm. but it is, it is, no, no, no. Wait, let, sorry to interrupt, but, but so my belief now is if you're in early stage investing, the first thing you have to do is make that sale. So it would have been easy. All we had to do is import bricks from, from Vietnam and open the sales office. You can build Thanks. a factory if you can sell them. So Got it. Prove, take the first step. Make sure you can sell a product. Perfect. And that's a great way to size the position because you go in with a minimum amount to test it. Yeah. Think, so your, your test is, is 100% at risk and it's a tiny thing. And it's, it's great. If it doesn't work, you got lots of money for more tests. Yep. And I think I'm going to leave my learning at that point. I think that listening to what you're saying about the sizing, because one of the things is when you're talking about the stock market, as an example, an area that I have a lot of experience in, it's easy to do a sizing of the position. What I was going to say is it's harder to do size of imposition in VC type of investing or angel investing, but you've just given the whole audience an opportunity to size that position small by doing this test of selling. Yeah. 
So I love that. That's what we do. That's what we do at 2030. And I'll tell you, if you read about professional poker players, they all offload their risk to each other. So they know that they have a very small chance of winning. So they all stake each other. So any given poker player in a tournament has a position in about 20 other players. And whoever wins typically gets a small amount of the winning and pays it out to all the other people who back it. Back. And that way, they all make very good money because the pots are tremendous, and they all kind of continue to stay in business year after year. All right. So let's wrap this up. Normally, what I would ask is what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? But I think I know the answer, which is sell. Mm -hmm. uh, learn to sell and also money management because this, the way you make money is the same way you lose money. Got it. All right. And now... Last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, the, the Pillar Project is my baby, and uh, I hope everybody will come to pillarproject.io and learn about our mission because we want to change the world. And so for the next 12 months, we want to have a strong platform product out. Our product just launched a few, about a month ago, but we want to have it much stronger, and we want to have a following of at least a million people by the end of the year so we can continue to build this personal data movement of the Pillar Project. And just to clarify, the personal data movement is the idea of taking back your personal data or control of your personal data. Right. You should own your identity and you should own your personal data and you should decide what to do with it and you should run your own algorithms to help you and not Amazons or Facebooks or Googles. Now that is a challenge. I love it. All right. <laughs> Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning, to, to find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk. Visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, David, I want to tell you, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your stories. I know it's painful talking about losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I do. Thank you for giving me a chance because I, I study failure. And one of my favorite authors is Alfie Cohn. He is a, an expert on child development. He's also, as far as I'm concerned, a business guru. Because if you know a lot about children, you understand markets. And Alfie Cohn says, this is one sentence, it's not just the habit of attributing your failure to being stupid that holds you back, but also the habit of attributing your success to being smart. Alfie Cohn. Bingo. Well, that's some deep words to leave with the audience. I appreciate that very much. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.